the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. You never know what match will light what tinderbox. And I'm wondering if finally, finally, the ghoul of racial and gender-based preferences in the name of equity or affirmative action will be buried once and for all, thanks to United Airlines. This week, United Airlines, seemingly named after the United States of America, issued this press release in the name of their CEO, Scott Kirby, quote, Over the next decade, United will train 5,000 pilots who will be guaranteed a job with United after they complete the requirements of the Aviat program. And our plan is for half of them to be women and people of color, close quote. From Scott Kirby's Wikipedia biography, we learn that Mr. Kirby was raised as the oldest of six children in Rowlett, Texas. In high school, he played baseball and football and had aspirations of becoming a professional athlete. I wonder what his policy for United, if applied to professional athletics, would look like to Mr. Kirby. Should we turn the NBA, which is 75% African-American, to 60% white to match our country's demographics, where only 13% of America is African-American? Should the NBA become 20% Hispanic, where it is now 2%, to better reflect and match our community? And why aren't people arguing on behalf of Hispanics for equity in the NBA? And what about making the NBA 6% Asian American? As of now, it's four-tenths of a percent. Where are the advocates on behalf of the Asian Americans' representation in the NBA? It'll never happen. You know why? Because in America, athletes and their professional organizations take themselves seriously. They take competence and ability and effort seriously. And they are happy to make it unserious for every other institution in America, even at the expense of safety. It's not as if pilots on commercial airlines are vested with more care and safety for lives than professional athletes, are they? Or are they? So I thought it might be good for us to revisit some of these arguments we used to know. I should like to quote Carl Cohen at length. He is a professor of philosophy at the University of Michigan, an expert in ideologies like communism and democracy and fascism. He writes that affirmative action has long had many meanings. The ambiguity, sometimes deliberate, has muddled the discussion of the central issue, which is this. Is there any justification for preference by race? The Civil Rights Act of 1964 authorized courts to take affirmative action to uproot racially discriminatory practices. That objective was and remains morally right. But by that same statute, race preference was forbidden. 
Affirmative action and race preference are thus plainly distinguishable. The former, in its original sense, is right and lawful. The latter is neither. Preference and and affirmative action are widely confounded in the public mind because race preferences were introduced beginning about 1970 in the honorable name of affirmative action. What was to have been eliminated was given in a complete inversion the name of what had been conceived to eliminate it. Most folks today, with unintended irony, mean by affirmative action that very preference by skin color that affirmative action was designed to eradicate. The result is doubly unfortunate. Immoral practices fly the flag of justice, and policies that deserve support are tainted by association with what everyone sees intuitively to be unfair. Henceforth, let us be clear, it is race preference that is to be condemned. Race preference is not justifiable in morals or in law. Evidently, only at United Airlines these days. Compensation to individuals who have been damaged is sometimes a demand of justice, but that is redress for injury, not entitlement by color. Skin color groups cannot be entitled to redress because rights are possessed by individuals, not groups. Race preferences are never just because they inescapably reward some who deserve no reward and penalize some who deserve no penalty. Penalty. Race preferences are never benign because when goods are in short supply, to give to some by race is to take from others by race. The University of Texas, claiming to compensate minorities for wrongs earlier done to them by Texas schools some decades ago, gave preference to affluent applicants who had never lived in Texas and to foreigners who had never lived in the United States because their skin color was dark. For the race preferences commonly given today, the retrospective justification grounded in alleged compensation is almost invariably a fraud. The prospective justification of race preference based on an idealized redistribution of goods by race is wholly without merit. It supposes that absent racial oppression, attainments and advantages would be homogeneously distributed among all persons and all ethnic groups, a notion that is wildly false. On this view, the test for social justice is numerical proportionality among racial groups, impossible to sustain without perpetual social engineering. The ideal is profoundly wrong-headed, but it is also internally incoherent because ethnic groups cannot be sorted so as to give each a proportional share of social goods. There are just too many ways to cut the pie. The demand for racial balance imposes ugly costs. It entails some formal determination of the racial category to which each individual is assigned and some formal division of the spoils by group. It makes racial quarrels inevitable and rules, perhaps one drop of blood, for resolving disputes over ethnic membership essential. Claims are made by race, arguments by blood. No redistributive system could be more unwholesome. Who reaps the benefits and who bears the burdens of racial preference? 
The beneficiaries of race preference are a few members of the preferred groups and the newly emerged core of administrators whose livelihoods are derived from the oversight and enforcement of preferences. The vast majority of the members of the minority groups in question, in whose interests preferences had reportedly been designed, they receive no benefits whatsoever. The burdens of preference, on the other hand, are borne by four large groups for each of whom the costs are very great. The cruelest and most damaging burdens are those imposed upon the members of the preferred minority group as a whole, who are inescapably undermined by racial preferences. When persons are appointed or admitted or promoted because of their racial group, it is inevitable that the members of that group will, in the institution giving such preference, perform less well on average. Membership in the minority group most certainly does not imply inferiority. That is a canard. But that stereotype is reinforced by preferences. Since the standards for the selection of minorities are inevitably lower when diluted by considerations of color, sex, or nationality, it is certainty It is a certainty that overall the average performance of those in the preferred group will be weaker, not because of their ethnicity, of course, but because many among them were selected on grounds having no bearing on the work or study pursued. Preference thus creates a link between the minority preferred and inferior performance. This burden is borne not only by those individuals preferred, but by every member of the minority group, including the many among them who genuinely excel. The general knowledge that persons with black or brown skins are given preference ensures lower expectations from all whose skins are one of those colors. Every minority member is made suspect. No one, including the minorities themselves, of course, can know for sure that any given member of a preferred group has not been awarded special favor. Skin color, the most prominent of personal characteristics, is thus transformed by preference, into permanent and public onus. If some demon had sought to concoct a scheme aimed at undermining the credentials of minority businessmen, professionals, and students to stigmatize them personally and to humiliate them publicly, there could have been no more ingenious plan devised than the preferences now so widely given in the name of affirmative action. Unfair burdens are also imposed upon deserving white applicants and employees who, because of their skin color, do not win the places that would otherwise have been theirs. One often hears the claim that the burdens of preferences are insignificant because they are widely shared by very many among the white majority already. This is false. Most among the majority bear no fraction of the burden. Those who do bear it are a small subset whose members are rarely identifiable by name. If a university gives admission preference to blacks, for example, some whites who would have been admitted but for that favoritism will not be admitted. The unfairness to those unidentifiable individuals who lose out because of their race is not reduced because we cannot learn their names. And every applicant with a pale skin who was not admitted or appointed may rightly wonder whether he was one of them whom the penalty had been exacted upon. Institutions that give preference pay a heavy price as well. Inferior performance results in many inefficiencies 
and hidden costs. In academic institutions, intellectual standards are lowered explicitly or in secret. Student performance is unavoidably lower on average than it would have been without the preferences, as are faculty productivity and satisfaction. The political need to profess equal treatment for all while knowingly treating applicants and faculty members unequally because of their race produces a pervasive hypocrisy. Every great public institution hides their policies, describes them deceptively, and sometimes has to lie about them to maintain them. Part of the price of race preference is the loss of institutional integrity and public respect. Finally, society at large suffers from the distrust and hostility that race preferences engender. Members of ethnic groups tussling for a larger slice of the preferential pie come to resent and despise their opposite numbers and competing minorities who always seem to get more than their share of the spoils. In schools, in playgrounds, in parks, in commerce, in sports, in industrial employment, even in legislatures and courts, the outcome is exacerbated tension, increasing self-segregation. More and more we come to abandon the ideal of an America in which persons and not groups are the focus of penalty and reward. Preference, ostensibly given to overcome the legacy of racism, takes the form of racism, nurtures racism, embitters the national community, and infects every facet of public life with racial criteria whose counterproductivity is matched only by its immorality. In the 1954 case of Brown versus Board of Education, Thurgood Marshall submitted the brief for the Legal Defense Fund of the NAACP, of which he was then executive director. He wrote there, quote, distinctions by race are so evil, so arbitrary and invidious that a state bound to defend the equal protection of the laws must not invoke them in any public sphere, close quote. The truth of this principle does not change with the times. Let us respond justly and compassionately to injury, giving remedy where remedy is due and credit where credit is due without regard to race. But if we are ever to heal our racial wounds, it will be through a national determination, morally resolute and backed by law where that is appropriate, never again to give preference by race or color or sex. The long-term success of a democratic polity requires a deep and widespread commitment to the principle that the laws protect all of us equally. In his controlling decision in Bakke in 1978, Justice Lewis Powell wrote, The guarantee of equal protection cannot mean one thing when applied to one individual and something else when applied to a person of another color. If both are not accorded the same protection, then it is not equal. Is this so difficult to understand? We begin to transcend racism when we stop the practice of every form of it by every public body we know of. Citizens of the United States, black and white, in preponderant majority, find skin color preference morally objectionable. Ours is a reasonably healthy democracy. Our body's politic will tolerate public discrimination not much longer. By court orders, by legislative acts, or by voter demand, race preferences will have to go. It needs to be replaced by its absence. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. Patrice uh, Khan-Coulors, Patrice Coulors, she is the founder of the Black Lives Matter movement and um, also a professor at Prescott College uh, here in Arizona, head of their MFA department, uh, uh, Masters in Fine Arts department. And uh, reports are she just bought a house in Los Angeles for $1.4 million, which uh, reminds me of the um, reminds me of the story when Lena Leonid Brezhnev was showing his mom one of his palatial dachas, vacation homes. And she said, so this is what's meant by selling your labor power. Uh, so this is what's meant. Uh, by selling the revolution to the masses. Uh, I wonder uh, how much her house in Prescott went for. There's a, uh, or is sold to her for. There is a, um, there is a a lot to do today, and uh, it's been a big week. I want to get uh, your take on anything uh, we raise here or anything that uh, you want us to raise. As uh, Scott Johnson puts it, uh, Amazon made headlines in February when they got into the censorship business. Uh, Without any notice or warning, they delisted Ryan Anderson's book, When Harry Became Sally, responding to the transgender movement, which is a thoughtful, deeply researched and humane study that uh, was published at Encounter Books a few months ago, as Roger Kimball writes. But it turns out that Amazon is not the only woke bookstore attempting to determine what you may and may not read. We just learned that Bookshop.org, which bills itself as a scrappy alternative to the Bezos behemoth, has also dropped the book. We have suspected that this was the case for some weeks. We reached out at least three times to inquire about the book. The organization never replied. At first, our distributor told us that they suspected there were stock issues. Just today, however, they got a direct response from bookshop.org. This is what that response said. Quote, we did remove this title based on our policies. We had multiple complaints and concerns from customers, affiliates, and employees about this title. Close quote. That's an interesting standard for a bookseller, isn't it? When people complain about the title or the author. I do note that bookshop.org, like Amazon, continues to sell Hitler's Mein Kampf, the lunatic anti-Semitic ravings of Louis Farrakhan, and many other similar unedifying tracks. They do not, however, sell many conservative books, including Heather MacDonald's The War on Cops and a whole host of others. You can't know if you can't read it. It reminds me of Pol Pot grinding up the glasses of people who needed them to read, lest they think for themselves and read something the state did not want you to. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-502, excuse me, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. We're getting on top of it all and seeing light at the end of the COVID tunnel. Along come the world's first Corona double mutant. 
This morning, concerns about a double mutant coronavirus variant in the U.S. The variant first discovered in India, now identified in the San Francisco area. This is the first time this particular double mutant has been found in the United States, and it was found here at our Stanford laboratory. This is COVID cases across the country climb and fears of a fourth wave are growing. Are we only on the fourth wave? Gee, it seems far more waves than that. So just imagine what could happen if this Indian double mutant met the South African variant in an abandoned New York singles bar and they both did the horizontal mumbo and spawned COVID's first triple mutant. It's COVID stan all the way down, now and forever. The only major economy to grow in 2020 was, oh, go on, take a wild guess, bingo, bingo, Chairman Xi and the Chai Coms. Everyone else is broke, including the United States, which is the brokey brokiest nation in the history of brokenness. The federal government has to pay back 28 trillion bucks, and that's a low ball, uh, 28 trillion bucks just to get back to having nothing nada zippo in its pocket. No one in human history has ever done that before. So whoever's waggling the Joe Biden moth-eaten sock puppet is now proposing the largest tax increase ever ever. And all the other advanced economies are going to have to follow suit. So in such a world, keeping the permanent emergency going is invaluable because nothing justifies increased taxes like an emergency without end. And let's face it, in COVID... an emergency without end. Well, he nailed it. Uh, He nailed it uh, like few few others can. Uh, Mark Stein is on the list of people, Bill, that we have, isn't he? If he's on TV, we're going to stop and watch. It's not a long list anymore. We used to talk about if you're flipping channels and you see someone being interviewed or talking on TV, what, um, what, uh, what, who, who are those people that you will stop to pause on? Uh, Mark Stein would be one for me. Uh, let's see. Heather MacDonald. Uh, I would say Heather MacDonald. I would say uh, Alex Berenson. Um, who, who are we missing, Bill, that we would pause the channel on if we saw them? I said McDonald, Stein, Berenson, uh, uh, Candace Owens, Larry Elder, uh, Dennis does some TV now and again. I would obviously pause on Dennis. Uh, who else? Who are we missing? I pause on William J. Bennett, of course. Yeah, we pause on Bill Bennett. And I pause on Adam Carolla. Oh, yes. Adam Carolla. That's a pretty good list. If anyone else has someone they'd like to pause on i'd like to uh, i'd like to know who you should who 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 you who you think is a great commentator today i don't know if you heard the ads i just thought this would be fun i don't know if you heard the ads we were doing uh where we were um giving away a library of conservative books and that library was created by five one two three four five of the salem hosts me being one of them uh their five favorite books in conservatism so we asked Five hosts, me being one of them, let's just say it this way. We asked four hosts in Salem what their five most important uh, conservative books were to them, what the most important books in the conservative catalog were to them. And we uh, gave them away to a winner. Uh, But I thought you might find interesting to know which host chose what five books and what they were. And I wonder if you all have one or two or three as well. So when we come back, I'll tell... Oh, there's Tina. I had a question for Tina. Good. We'll start with Tina and Star Valley. And then uh, tell you what Larry, Mike Gallagher, Dennis Prager, and Seb Gorka's favorite books are. If you want to know mine, I'll tell you mine too. And uh, for people like Tina, 
and people like Dana and people who know dogs, we have a dog question. What is the question, Bill? If you have an aging dog, do you want a younger one to help it? Is that the question? Is that the question? That is the question. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. A little Doc Severinsen for you there. Let's go to the calls. Tina in Star Valley. Hi, Tina. Hello. How are you? I'm well. How are you? <laughs> well, I'm 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 good. Except your your question about dogs is particularly poignant because I just found out that my my old boy Chow and you know it, the joke around Chow owners is we have Chows we don't have dogs right. Because they are, they're like cats. Oh, yes. These dogs. Well, I found out that Yogi Bear has cancer. I'm sorry and, uh, to hear that. Yeah, he's 12 years old. Yeah. And, uh. You know, I, I, of course, you know, you, you, you're in denial until something like that happens. And even when it happens, you're in denial until it's time to let them go. Yeah. But the question is, should one get a another dog? Does I it cheer a, them up? Does it keep them active? Or is it an annoyance uh, not, uh, and a distraction from your passion to them? Well, it's a chow, and she I don't think she wants another dog. They're like beta fish. Chows are like beta fish. If you have they two, are. you'll soon have one. And the other yeah, one will be well, full. We, I, mean, I mean we have two and, and you know and, and they, they coexist. Yeah. Super, super yeah, they cool. coexist. They have correct relations. They're not. It's not. It's they, not entente. They, it's detente. I understand. Yeah, and I do know people who have you know cows that are very fond of each other. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, I don't really think we'll be getting another dog, and that's a big deal for us because yeah. we've always had two or three. Yeah. So anyway, um, right. but I wanted to make a comment about Prince Philip. Um, I, I was fortunate enough in 1961 when we lived in Jamaica to meet Prince Philip, and he was he was such a fun guy. He really was jolly and and warm and friendly, and of course we were just in awe of him, you know, his, being royalty and all. But it was it was really a wonderful era in which royalty was dignified, and the the Commonwealth was happy to have them there. And, oh, my gosh, um, bygone era. Yeah, and an era uh, that represented a part of the royalty before all we thought about was royalty in connection to scandal. Yes, yes. We think well, about and, the royalty and, you know, today and immediately we think some kind of scandal. What Prince Philip represented yeah. in his heyday was the absence of that. And we didn't appreciate yeah. it probably, or the Brits may not have appreciated it. I have never, um, I have never right. been as fascinated with the royalty as a lot of people I know. I never have been, um, and it's a you know. I wish I knew more about it. On the one hand, on the other hand, um, you know, it's 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 a throwback to to a, to a different time of governance that we left uh, as Americans. So I don't I don't particularly have much belief in it. That having been said, as a cultural institution, it seemed to be a very moderating one, uh, from what I understand of British history, up until recently. Up until recently. And I get why Dennis well, yes, Prager yes says he no. prays. He, De, one last thing. Is yeah. Dennis Prager prays daily, he says, for the Queen's health. <laughs> for the Queen's health. Because if Prince oh, Charles becomes king, the world is doomed. Oh, ick. Yeah. Ick. Yeah. Yes. Ick. And, and, 
you know, also, I, I, I also met, met Princess Margaret. Ah. And poor, poor Princess Margaret, yeah. she, but you know, she was, she was devoted to doing her duty. And that was the whole thing is that, yes, they, I'm not, you know, I'm a true American. I couldn't wait to get home to my country to be uh, the sovereign individual sure. and have the public servants work for me. Right. Um, you know, and the servants' quarters would be the White House. Yep. Um, yeah, yeah. How soon they didn't work that. out that way. Uh, not, not, not lately. Um, but you know, I, I, there was this this feeling that one owed it to the people to to be uh, act a certain way and to embody certain um, you know manners and is and the dignity. is the and phrase noblesse oblige is that what we're looking for. Indeed. Yes, it is exactly. No, no bless, so yes. bleach. Yeah, okay. Yes, and it was a heavy burden. Yeah, they, they they took it seriously. And if you think about World War II, when the king and and uh, queen the queen mom yep. uh, stayed at Buckingham Palace yep. while they sent the you know the little princesses yep. out to the country, yep. but they stayed yep. where it was getting bombed. Yep, yep, down um, with the ship. Yeah, yep. So. Anyway, then the last thing I wanted to say was about COVID. Yes, we're running into such madness everywhere. We're still, we still have people uh, wearing masks and just acting so superior outdoors. about it. Outdoors. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Outdoors and driving in their car alone yeah. and riding bicycles yeah. and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And uh, a woman whom I know who I, I'm, I'm fond of, but she's kind of my favorite liberal, um, she said to me that everybody needs to get vaccinated so that we can have herd immunity. Mm. Hmm. Uh huh. So these so people know a lot too. What kind of disease too. is this? Yeah. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. I mean, I actually had I had COVID yeah. and I uh, got hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, and my husband and I got through it just fine, and yeah. we're fine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, most people are. Most people are, and uh, yeah. I mean, you know, you have to be in in decent shape, at least not obese, and not old. Yes, eighty percent. Eighty percent of the hospitalizations hospital. are people who are overweight. Right. Yeah, correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So, so yeah. as you are well, filling I'm... your carts at the supermarket <laughs> with all kinds of. You know, ridiculously saturated fat foods, but you're going to lecture me about mask wearing. Stuff it, I say. Stuff it. Well, yeah, that that too. But remember, I I I don't know if you do. I'm a carnivore, so I'm on the carnivore diet, with sort of ketovore, where I do eat saturated fat, but I eat no sugar. I know, and you also are very athletic. And I am. I'm yeah. Still well, that makes yoga. a difference just, too. You know. I just had my 74th birthday, and I'm so happy. Thank you. (laughs) And I'm still teaching yoga and now weightlifting four times a week. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yes. Stay well, Tina, and stay close. Thank you, and people need to stay healthy. There is... Nobody is paying attention to... Oh, I know. There are guidelines from the CDC on obesity, too, and it takes 500,000 Americans a year, maybe. Who who cares about that? Well, yeah. we should. Well, no, there's no herd, there's no herd immunity on that one. I guess that's right, with a vaccine or without. <laughs> God bless you, Tina. Love you, dear. God bless you. Take care. Have a wonderful, right. have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Uh, can I work this in real quick, Jim and Phoenix? Who who do you stop the TV on, Jim? Jim, Jim, are you there? Jim, can you hear me? Going once, twice. No. 
Jack, real quick, in Phoenix. Hi, Jack. Hey, Seth. How are you? Well, being really quick, uh, an excellent friend of mine who's uh, literally a genius uh, decided he was going to pull down terabytes of uh, NOAA data uh, since 1900 to the present. And he found some interesting things in the process. One of them was in the late 90s, estimates instead of actual measurements grew from about 2 or 3% through most of the 20th century to 50%. Estimates of what? And estimates of the temperature. Oh, I see. Yes, 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 yes. I see. I'm with you, Jack. Thank you. Appreciate it. I am Seth Leibson, 602 We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by my friend Solar Sandy, the woman who brought integrity back to solar. The difference between Solar Sandy and other solar companies is that she actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. It's so important when going solar that you do it the right way, and Solar Sandy is the right way. Who has the, She has the formula. She wants to put more of your hard-earned money back in your pocket and can. When you go solar, Solar Sandy will pay 12 months of your solar payments, any portion of your power bill for the first 12 months. And because it's March Madness, Solar Sandy's promotion for the first 50 families is that they will receive a $1,000 signing bonus. That's right. No solar panel payments, no power bill for 12 months, and a $1,000 bonus at signing. There's no better time to go solar with Solar Sandy than right now. Go to AskSolarSandy.com. Again, that's AskSolarSandy.com, and tell her I sent you. Jim is in Phoenix. There you are. Hi, Jim. Hi, Seth. So I was uh, I was going to offer my uh, I'll pause on Victor Davis Hanson ah, yes. every time. Ah, yes. Who will you pause the TV on if you see them as a guest? Victor Davis Hansen is a good one. Uh, so our list is Larry Elder, Dennis Prager, Victor Davis Hansen, Bill, who else is on the list? Heather MacDonald and Mark Stein and William Bennett. That's our list so far. And what a list it is. And the other <laughs> aspect of that list is that for all my uh, lefty friends, all I need to do is send them something uh, and they see any one of those names and they don't read it. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Um, because I'm going to guess you read what they send you. Oh, you betcha. Yeah, I thought so. I thought so. They kind of force us to. They kind of force us to answer. And they have a Gatling gun, Jim, don't they? They have a Gatling gun of stuff they can throw our way. It's not hard when NBC and CNN and MSNBC and The Washington Post and The New York Times are all running with the same story. So you get the same story six times, usually feed, one feeding off the other's anonymous sources. And then, you know, you get all these Google hits that pl that play off it. So you get that one storyline that, you know, your friends are going to send to you ad nauseum and leaves it to us to dissect it uh, for them. And then they won't care anyway because they're much more about some political version of pluralistic ignorance um, than um, than truth seeking and doing the right thing uh, they are they are they that's 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 what they that's that's their stock in trade uh, they will flood you with stories to cow you 
They do not want your response, even though you know you must respond because they expect you to respond. And when you do, they will simply just dismiss it or ignore it. If that's not plural ignorance, I don't know what is. Pete Peterson, coming right up. Don't go away. We'll be right back.